Welcome back to another segment of the Teacher Talk. I'm your host, Kat, and today we are having a conversation on creating safe classroom environments. Our guests this week are five different PJ teachers, Melissa Brandy, Meredith McDonald, Leanne Etsy, Beth Jewett, and Caitlin Van Prate. Each teacher is here to discuss important topics such as safe spaces, inclusivity, building relationships, mental health, and physical safety. Our first teacher to get our conversation going is Melissa Brandy, and she's going to expand on what a safe space is. Welcome, Melissa. So what can you tell us about what a safe space is? So when looking into the definition of a safe classroom, I found a few different interpretations by three different professionals. Bruce Perry stated that a sense of safety comes from consistent, attentive, nurturing, and sensitive attention to each child's needs. Safety is created by predictability, and predictability is created by consistent behaviors. This definition focuses on the teacher and how their consistency and attention to student needs creates a safe space for students to learn and behave properly. Lynn Hawley and Sue Steiner of Arizona State University describe a safe space as a description of a classroom climate that allows students to feel secure enough to take risks, honestly express their views, and share and explore their knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. This definition focuses on a safe space from the student's perspective. It describes how students feel in a safe classroom versus what a teacher needs to do to create it. Natella Dalganadze stated that a focus on types of relations that exist between teacher and students and between students is what creates a safe classroom. Wow, and do you think one of the definitions describes it better than the other? Looking at the definitions by different industry professionals, I found it was best to combine them to make a cohesive definition of what a safe classroom is and the different aspects needed to create one. A safe classroom is a space where students feel physically safe in terms of allergies, concussions, asthma, and physical injury hazards. It is a non-judgmental space where students are comfortable to share their views and opinions, secure enough to take risks, and honestly express their emotions, knowledge, and thoughts. Students will be given the space by teachers who are attentive, consistent, and understanding of different backgrounds of all types and treat each student with the same level of respect and warmth. This cohesive definition rounds out the topics my colleagues will chat about later. That was very informational. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Next teacher is Meredith McDonald to discuss inclusivity within the classroom. Welcome, Meredith. So for the past few years, I've been studying student inclusion within the classroom and how it impacts the creation of a safe space. What I have found is that teachers play an important role in creating safe classrooms for students, and by implementing diverse and inclusive lessons, it provides all students with a sense of belonging, where they can ultimately express themselves in any way that they wish to, whether that be through their culture, their religion, or their identity. What strategies can teachers implement to ensure they are creating an inclusive space for their students? And how does inclusivity tie into promoting an overall safe classroom? That's a great question. So through my research, I came across a significant amount of strategies that teachers can use in order to create an inclusive classroom. Do you ever find yourself addressing students as if they all share your same social identity? It's easy for us to assume that all students are presenting as their assigned identity. However, it's important for educators to be mindful of the language in which they use within the classroom. A strategy for this would be to get to know your students. Make that connection with them in order to build that comfortability and sense of trust. If your students feel comfortable with you, it can be the first step in giving them a sense of belonging. Another strategy takes a look at the curriculum and how it's crucial to provide students with multiple diverse examples of what is being taught. 
If you think about ways in which students want to relate to what is being taught, we, can, we can't always assume it will relate to all students. Therefore, making it reach that diverse set of students will allow them to gain a sense of belonging and further enhance their overall learning. Finally, one of the overarching strategies I have found is to set class expectations that highlight the importance of acceptance and respect. This will assure that all other students are also being inclusive and respectful, ultimately fostering a safer space for all. Those are all great strategies to create inclusive classrooms. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Meredith? As a final thought, I just wanted to share a quote from Kim Paulson, who wrote about the importance of inclusive education and how it impacted her own son. She wrote, I see inclusive education as paving a path for a better future, not just for my son, but for everyone. It paves the path for kids from an early age to be with others, to experience the broad spectrum of diversity and difference in the human condition. The reason that it's important is because the students of today will be the adults of tomorrow. Thanks, Meredith. Our next teacher is Leanna Yetzi, and she's going to speak on building positive relationships within the classroom. So Leanna, tell me what are the positive outcomes from establishing relationships between teachers and their students? So yeah, there are numerous positive outcomes for students when building these trusting relationships. Fredrickson and Rhodes discussed the positive academic and psychological factors that contribute to the quality of student-teacher relationships in their article, The Role of Teacher Relationships in the Lives of Students. The authors state that by creating an environment that encourages feelings of belonging and support, teachers can simultaneously meet the academic and social needs of students. When students feel supported emotionally and academically, they are more inclined to participate and engage in their learning. As well, they're more confident when making mistakes in front of classmates as a safe environment has already been developed and maintained. The authors also describe the impact of positive relationships on students' social development, where this support serves as a regular function in the students' development of behavioral and emotional skills. By creating positive rapport with the students, they are more likely to want to behave in, the, in ways that please the teacher as they want to maintain this close relationship with them. The continuation of this warm and supportive relationship is imperative to the students, which is why they are willing to cause less conflict and model their teacher's daily behaviors. It is evident that for any classroom environment to be safe, the teacher must develop positive and trusting relationships with each of their students. Wow, so positive relationships yield social and academic benefits? Amazing! So my next question is then, do you think that peer-to-peer -peer relationships are just as important when creating a safe classroom environment? Yeah, so for a safe classroom environment to function well, it depends deeply on the trusting relationships between teachers and students. Although the relationships developed between peers also play an imperative role in maintaining the learning environment. David W. Johnson's article, Student-Student Interaction, The Neglected Variable in Education, describes the numerous reasons as to why student-student interactions are essential within the classroom. For peer-to-peer -peer relationships to be positively influential, they must promote feelings of belonging, acceptance, support, and caring, instead of feelings of rejection. These are central attributes to a safe learning environment as each student needs to feel welcomed and accepted in order to want to learn and engage with their learning. Since peer acceptance is important to students, rejection from this group may influence classroom behavior and attitude. Johnson found that rejection by peers is related to disruptive behavior, hostile behavior, and negative attitudes towards students in school. This is why, as the teacher, it is imperative to develop safe learning environments that build on positive peer-to-peer -peer relationships. Relationships are clearly very important in the classroom. Thank you, Leanna. Next up is Beth Jewett, and she is here to discuss the importance of mental health in the classroom. So Beth, I hear you're an expert regarding mental health support, promotion, and resources. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I've been researching about mental health in schools and how it is essentially addressed and taken care of. 
Um, So the organization that essentially takes care of mental health promotion and so forth in schools is the School Mental Health Ontario. They are a provincial support team helping the Ontario school boards promote student mental health and, and well-being. They collaborate with the Ministry of Education and other organizations to help create an approach to school mental health. Some services they provide are leadership and guidance about best practices in school mental health, implementation coaching, tailored co-created resources, training for school mental health professionals, and a platform for student voice and leadership in school mental health. Great to hear. Would you be able to provide any advice for teachers on how they help promote their students' mental health and well-being? Yes, of course. So a wonderful document called Supporting Minds and Educators Guide to Promoting Students' Mental Health and Well-Being covers various strategies teachers can adopt to help promote their students' mental health. This would include creating a positive classroom environment, so making their students feel safe, accepted in the classroom. This can actually improve not only their mental health, but also their physical health and development. This could be done through praising their good behaviors, creating strong relationships with students, but also with their parents or guardians to create a positive classroom climate. Teachers can also be leaders in reducing stigma around mental health problems by talking to their students, having these open discussions about mental health problems in the class to really make sure that the students understand the topics to help change their perceptions away from looking at mental health problems in a negative way. Um, One of my favorite points from this document is for teachers to get to know their students. Make yourself available to your students. Involve administrative staff, parents too, when identifying potential mental health problems. And also keep your eyes open. Be aware of your students' behaviors in your classroom so you can notice when they suddenly change, as this could be a sign that they need help or support. The bottom line is to make your students feel comfortable opening up to you, and if they are not, that is okay. Reach out to your colleagues to help you solve the problem. Great points. Are there any specific programs that have been implemented in schools that are to support student mental health? Yeah, there are lots of programs. From Chapter 2 of Macklin 2011, the first one I'm going to talk about is a program that's called Incredible Years. So this program has two goals. The first is to enhance social, emotional, and academic competence. And the second is to reduce conduct problems. Using the three-tiered approach and looking at tier one, which is the universal approaches. So it is provided to everyone in the classroom. Incredible Years' tier one program actually implements what is called the Dina Dinosaur curriculum. So this is for kindergarten to grade two, and it consists of both parent and teacher components. There are 60 lessons that are presented overall each week through whole group discussions, practice activities, and at-home activities. Dina Dinosaur trains children in emotional literacy, empathy, communication, friendship, interpersonal problem solving. Evidence of this program has supported it, saying that it tends to be more impactful on students that are at higher risk for mental health problems. At Tier 2, which focuses more on small groups and for children ages 4 to 8 that have been displaying behavioral problems. What's great about this program is it not only has helped the students, but it also helps the teachers. Teachers involved in the Incredible Years program have been considered more nurturing, less critical, and more focused on promoting social and emotional behaviors in their students. Students, however, have had improvements in concentration, emotional regulation, and social skills. Another program is called PATHS, which stands for Promoting Alternative Thinking Strategies. So this one is a universal program for kindergarten to grade five. 
It includes lessons on emotional understanding, self-control, social skills, and social problem-solving skills. This program helps children talk about and manage their feelings. There has been evidence to support this program with lower rates of externalizing behavior continuing two years after the intervention. There's also been decreases in depression and increased ability to recognize others' feelings. A third program is the FRIENDS program, which is another acronym. So feeling worried, relax and feel good, inner thoughts, explore plans of action, nice work, reward yourself, and don't forget to practice and stay cool. So this one is targeted for children and adolescents at risk for anxiety and depression. It's also implemented both at Tier 1 and Tier 2. It includes psychoeducation, relaxation strategies, cognitive restructuring, positive self-talk, problem-solving, goal-setting, and relapse prevention. It has been successful for reducing anxiety for both students that speak English as their first language and students who are English as a second language students. So the last program I'm going to talk about today is called the Coping Cat Program. So this one involves cognitive behavioral therapy for children with anxiety disorders. This is the most widely used program to help decrease anxiety, particularly for those with separation anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and social phobia. It involves both parents and the child, as parents are taught to be coaches for their children. And this program uses modeling, exposure, relaxation, role play, and reinforcement helping students develop coping strategies and self-regulation. Love to hear it. Thanks, Beth. I have one more question for you. When implementing mental health programs, how can educators or other staff do so in such a way that promotes inclusivity and cultural sensitivity? Great question. So when doing my research, I came across an article by Klaus Ehlers et al. 2013 that discusses the importance of school counselors having cultural awareness of their students, such as being aware of societal changes and being sensitive to how these changes can impact students differently, depending on the cultural group in which they identify with. So counselors can ensure all students feel respected and included by creating culturally competent services, rather than assuming that all students will benefit from the exact same program. By doing this, it can help improve student academic performance and their mental health. So the key is to find tools and resources that are beneficial to that particular child and their unique mental health. Thanks, Beth, for providing all that amazing research. Now introducing our final guest, Caitlin Van Prey, an expert of the physical side of classroom safety. Thank you for coming. Can you give us a brief overview of what some of your research has looked like? Hi Kat, thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here and talk a bit about my research. For me, a classroom environment is one where learners feel emotionally, socially, and physically comfortable, knowing that their needs are taken care of. Over the last few years, my research has revolved around four main topics or ideas in terms of physical safety, concussion protocol, anaphylaxis, inhalers, and miscellaneous. Some of the miscellaneous things include things like scissor safety, clearing exits and windows, overall design and layout of your classroom and learning centers, and also creating appropriately sized classrooms for both your daily routines, but also specific lessons. That's all so fascinating. There really is so much to consider on a daily basis. Can you elaborate a little more on the other three aspects of your research? Absolutely. So essentially, there has been three separate and incredibly devastating events in 2003, 12, and 13, where a young life was lost. 
Although devastating, there has been some good that has come out of it. The Ministry of Education here in Ontario has made it a priority to change many laws and protocols so that we can avoid similar situations to the very best of our ability from happening in the future. There has been three main laws that were created in honor of the young lives that were lost. First is Rowan's Law, a concussion protocol. The Ministry of Education recognizes that the education's concussion protocol is the minimum standard for school boards. As part of its commitment to student safety, injury prevention, and well-being, the Ministry of Education supports concussion awareness, prevention, identification, management, tracking, and training in schools through legislation, policy, and resources. Next is Sabrina's Law, which is an anaphylaxis policy. The law states that every school board in Ontario must establish and maintain an anaphylaxis policy to help students with serious allergies. And last but not least is Ryan's Law, which is an asthma policy. This revolves around the idea of creating and ensuring asthma-friendly schools. In 2015, Ontario had made it illegal for schools to keep inhalers away from kids suffering from asthma. That's amazing. What are some actual hands-on tactics we can implement into our daily routines as educators to ensure physical safety? There's lots that can be done as educators. So for concussions, this would be things like keeping our classrooms free of clutter, spills, trip hazards, encouraging fair play, recognizing and reporting concussions, knowing the symptoms and being able to recognize them, and supporting the implementation of a return to school plan for students who have been diagnosed with concussions. For anaphylaxis, we can do things like reducing the risk of exposure to anaphylactic causative agents, creating a communication plan with parents, pupils, and the employees, having regular training on dealing with life-threatening allergies. Also, the student is required to provide information such as the type of allergy, monitoring, and avoidance strategies and appropriate treatment. Also, we need to be having readily accessible emergency procedure plans for the individual and proper storage of epinephrine auto-injectors. And lastly, for inhaler protocols, some of the hands-on tactics that we can implement as educators might overlap, reducing the risk of exposure to asthma triggers, having a communication plan and regular training. As educators, we should also be able to recognize the symptoms and the individual must have a readily accessible asthma medication and emergency plan. There are so many things that we can do as educators to help enhance physical safety inside of our classrooms. I have given you a few to hopefully get your minds thinking, but I would also encourage everyone out there to have these important conversations within your school board. Thank you so much, Kat, for having me on today. Well, this week's teacher talk has been very informational on how to create and maintain safe classroom environments. I want to give a big thanks to my guests this week, Melissa Brandy, Meredith McDonald, Deanna Etsy, Beth Jewett, and Caitlin Van Praek for sharing their incredible insights on this topic. As always, this is your host, Kat, and I hope to see you next week for our episode five on teacher reflexivity. Mm-hmm.